Joy is a distinctly Christian word in a Christian thing. It is the reverse of happiness. Happiness is the result of what happens of an agreeable sort. Joy has its springs deep down inside, and that spring never runs dry no matter what happens. Only Jesus gives that joy. He had joy singing its music within, even under the shadow of the cross. This quote from Samuel Gordon, um, I think, is, is quickly becoming <coughs> kind of the theme quote for our sermon series. And as we jump back in uh, to the series, Joy, a study in Philippians, I wanted to remind you of the nature of the joy that we're discussing uh, in this book and how it is a particularly unique Christian experience. Biblical joy, the joy that Samuel Gordon is speaking about, is not happiness. This feeling of elation that comes as a result of circumstances. When the circumstances change, so do the feelings. The emphasis all throughout the book of Philippians has been a joy that is different than that. A joy that, that, that has no connection to our circumstances. The reason I say that is, is because when we look at the book of, of Philippians, where time and time and time and time and time again, uh, Paul writes about joy, where he, he talks about uh, praying with joy at all times. He, he, he talks about rejoicing when he thinks about the church. He, he says, rejoice in the Lord. In fact, he says, rejoice in the Lord several different times and says, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Time and time again, Paul is talking to the church. He's talking to us in the book of Philippians. And he says, listen, you guys need to be in joy. And what's so poignant about that, what's so powerful about that is as we talked about He's writing all of this. He's talking about his own joy. He's talking about joy for others while he's rotting in a Roman prison. The circumstances can't get much worse than that. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you're facing right now, my guess is it isn't quite as bad as being 12 or 15 feet underground, chained to a dark cell, hanging out in in your own feces. Whatever you're going through probably doesn't quite compare And yet, time and time and time again, Paul says, I have joy. He says, I'm rejoicing. He says, you guys should rejoice. So what's really powerful about this idea is that clearly, joy is not circumstance-based. The joy we're talking about is not circumstance-dependent because it is a joy that comes as a result of, the transcendent nature of Jesus Christ's work in a person's life. That's where, that's where Paul keeps pointing us. That's where God, Paul keeps pushing the church in Philippi, too. He's looking at it and he's saying, listen, it is, it is my joy I have, the joy that you need to have, is not circumstance-dependent. It is Christ-dependent. It is Jesus-centric. That's the very idea that I believe this morning's text is, is pushing us to or driving us to. The passage we're looking at is found at the very beginning of Philippians chapter 3. And I want to walk through the 9 or 10 verses that open this chapter with you because I think these verses present not only a, a descriptive, informative idea about biblical joy, but I think it presents a, a powerful challenge to whether or not we have the roots of joy in our lives. 
And, and, I, and I, want you to, I really want you to examine this. I really want you to, this to be a point of, of heart examination. For a lot of us, as we talk about joy, as we walk through this question of joy, a lot of us can kind of go back and, and have this really surface level connection with the conversation I'm having. And I think part of the reason for that is because we don't have what it really takes. We don't have the mentality. We don't have the identity that it takes to really find joy, the joy that's spoken of in Philippians. I want us to really examine our hearts. And I want this to be a time where we ask ourselves if joy is wanting because our passion is wavering. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. I want you to stop there. I want you to see how he opens up this chapter. What, what does he start with? He says, he starts with this idea that we're talking about. He's talking about joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Now, as we read this, I don't want you to read over it, because a lot of times we can read over these ideas, and, and we, can, we can diminish the instruction of that statement. Rejoice in the Lord. We're talking about a transcendent joy, a distinctly Christian experience of joy. And he says, rejoice in the Lord. Now, you have to understand the terminology. You have to understand the phraseology. You have to understand how he's phrasing this idea. His declaration is, your joy is in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And in fact, what he's, the, way, the way he's really saying this is he's saying, listen, rejoice in the Lord. And he says, listen, to, to write the same thing over and over again to you is no trouble to me. To keep telling you this, to keep saying to you, rejoice in the Lord is no problem for me. I'm happy to keep saying this to you over and over and over again. He says, in fact, at the air, it says, he says, because this is safe for you. This is good for you. This is beneficial to you. That I keep reiterating to you guys, rejoice in the Lord. Apparently, Paul believes it's really important that us as Christians are rooted in this idea that we need to find our joy in the Lord. The, the idea that we, we will find our joy in the Lord, in Him. So what he's trying to get us to understand is the very essence, that our joy is rooted in the essence of Him. It's in who Jesus is. It's in whom Christ is. I, I, don't, want you to, I don't want you to Christianize this idea, okay? What I mean by that is, is we Christians, we have this really, really um, well-rehearsed, really well-practiced ability to hear certain phrases and certain ideas and go, amen, and nod our heads and think it's a great idea, but not really have any idea what we're talking about. We say, rejoice in the Lord, and everybody goes, yes, rejoice in the Lord. And we can sing a song and maybe we'll even get so excited we dance a little bit and we walk out of here. And I don't think we really understand what it means to rejoice in the Lord. 
the declaration here is we find our joy in Him. Not, not rejoice because of what blessings He gives us. Not, not rejoice because of what I can point to and say, I got out of this. Because you realize how quickly that comes back to circumstance-based? But it says, rejoice in Him. To know Him. To be in Him. To be near Him. Rejoice in Him. Rejoice in the Lord. What gets us to that rejoicing, what, what brings the passion that gives us the joy. As we talk about this, and he says, listen guys, I want you guys to have joy. I want you guys to be rejoicing. And he's saying, where you find that joy is in him. Not what you get, not what you've got, not what you're looking for, but in him. And I really believe that there, for that joy to, to take root in our hearts, for that joy to take root in our lives, we have to have this passion to be in Him, to know Him. So how does that happen? I think it's fascinating because Paul goes from this admonition, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in Him. Be, be rooted and grounded in the essence of who Jesus Christ is, and there you'll find your joy. He goes from rejoice in the Lord to possibly the most important theological, doctrinal, biblical truth we ever need to grasp about the gospel. This is why, this is why when people want to separate themselves from doctrine, when people want to separate themselves from theology, it's a problem. Because, because sound doctrine positions us to rejoice in the Lord. And I want you to see why that is. And I want you to see how he does that in this passage. He opened the book, he opened this, this chapter, and he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And then he says this Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now that's kind of fascinating, isn't it? He opens the book and he says, he opens the chapter and he says, Rejoice in the Lord. And I know I keep telling you this, but it's no problem for me to tell you this because it is good for you to hear rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes from there and his very next line is, look out for the dogs. I think this requires some explanation. And this would be a lot clearer to the audience in Paul's day. First of all, I want you guys to understand, I want you to feel, and I want you to notice the emphatic repudiation given by Paul here, right? Paul has an issue with someone. Paul has an issue that he's trying to say, look out for these guys, look out for this. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for the mutilators of the flesh. 
Understand, this is strong stuff. For us, we hear that and it seems pretty strong. But in that day, this would have been, there would be, there'd be no way in which Paul could ever describe somebody more derisively than this way. Each one of these statements carries with it a deep spiritual indication that he's trying to get the audience to understand. You've got to look out for this. He says, he says, beware, look out for the dogs. Now understand something. Um, these, these, he's not talking about dogs like you and I kind of identify with dogs, right? He's not, he's not talking about, you know, our, our cute little puppy idea where we go home and, oh, look at the dog. He's not really even talking about here about, like, you know, scary dogs. Look out for the German shepherds. Beware of the dogs. The idea that he's conveying here is in Palestine, the dogs were these mangy pack runners. And they were considered unclean. The, the, the Jews would, would avoid dogs the way they would avoid pigs. It wasn't one of these things where they would play with them and they'd throw them balls and they'd pet them and that kind of thing. His declaration is, these guys are filthy. These guys are unclean. They're, they're, they're evildoers. They're evil workers. They're looking to do you harm. They're unclean. He's bringing a spiritual implication to it. He says, these guys aren't even to be touched. They, they, you shouldn't have anything to do with them. And then he goes even deeper and he says, these mutilators of the flesh. In this regard, Paul is, is, is showing uh, his, his linguistic brilliance because he's, he's, he's expressing this in, in, a, in a dual fashion. Genuine, uh, generally, for a Jew, the repudiation of mutilators of the flesh was a, was a long-standing um, uh, euphemism for idol worshipers. They, they, they understood this long history of these idol worshipers who would go out and they would cut themselves in, in worship of the idols. How many of you guys remember the story of Elijah um, up on Mount Carmel, remember? Where, where, where he, he, he lays a challenge against the, the, the priests of of the idol, and he says, listen, let's see who can get fire down from heaven to, to consume our, our altar. And if you remember the story, it says that they danced around all day, that these, these, these priests of the idol worships danced around all day, and they would, took out knives, and they cut themselves, and they danced, and they, and, they, and they cried out, and they mutilated their flesh. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, these guys are so bad. They are spiritually unclean like a dog. They're, they're working against you. They're, they're mutilators of the flesh. And, and as I said, the, the implication is idol worship. But he's not only talking about that. He's not only using that phrase in, in the idea of saying they're unclean. But he's talking about those who are requiring circumcision. He's saying they're mutilators of the flesh. I understand the depths of this, right? Circumcision was, was the mark of holiness. Circumcision was the mark of righteousness for the nation of Israel. It was the, it was the mark of the descendants of Abraham that says we are marked for God. And so as, 
as, as Paul is writing here, what he's doing is, this is him making the Judaizers the target of his disdain. The Judaizers were those who said, yes, who were saying, yes, yes, Christ is your means of salvation. But that salvation only comes for those who are good Jews. It only comes for those who follow the way of Judaism and, and live up to being circumcised. How they only eat clean foods, live in accordance with ceremonial righteousness. He's talking about those people who, who, who worm their way into the Christian faith and say, listen, yes, Jesus is good, but you need something else. It's Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus Sabbath. Jesus plus eating laws. Jesus plus. And, and, and Paul has no space for that. Paul has no room for Jesus plus. As you hear how I described it, do you understand how Paul wasn't exactly being really polite about this? He wasn't being soft about this. He was being as deeply insulting as he could possibly muster. Their whole idea was, we're such good Jews. We're, we're such good Jews. We're, we're, we're Christians, but we're Jesus plus. And he's like, nah, man. You guys are as bad as idol worshipers. You guys are, you guys are as filthy as dogs. You guys are, are terrible. He's saying, any, he's saying this idea of Jesus plus is an incredible, unbelievable threat to what it means to be a Christ follower. Not Jesus plus. Those who, who claim to be the upholders of, of righteous cleanliness, Paul says, they're unclean. They're the unclean dogs. He equates the, the circumcision with the act of idol worship mutilation. Think of that for a moment. That, that, that which seems so quintessentially Jewish holiness is described by Paul to be the equivalent of idolatrous self-mutilation. What's so important for us to understand is that the threat of Jesus plus to the rejoicing that Paul calls us to. There's something in there. He's saying, rejoice in the Lord. This is important for you guys. This is, this is safe for you guys. I'm going to keep repeating this because you need to understand. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he comes in and he deeply repudiates Jesus plus. Because apparently he feels as though this idea will threaten the idea of finding joy in the Lord. Paul is trying to say, listen guys, Jesus plus is a threat to our rejoicing in the Lord. And I think as you read further, we begin to understand why he feels that way. Though I myself have confidence, have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he, ha he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of, of the people of Israel. I'm of the, I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. 
as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he's going in and he's saying, rejoice in the Lord always. This is important for you guys to understand. Rejoice in the Lord. Now those guys who are in there trying to teach you Jesus plus, they're wrong, man. They're, they, are, they are destructive. They are going to create issues for you. And let me, let me tell you something. I, I got this down. He says, listen, I know the game in which they're engaged. Listen, you, you want to tick the boxes? You, you want to talk about establishing fleshly holiness? I've got this. I followed the rules of circumcision since childhood. I'm an Israelite. I, I'm a Benjamite. Highly thought of the, 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 the tribe of, of King David himself. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. There, there's no mixing of my parentage. My mom was a Hebrew. My dad was a Hebrew. Everybody was Hebrew. I, I, I was a, a Pharisee. I studied the law. I was a persecutor of the church because I was so zealous about the law. He's trying to say, he's trying to tell them, he's saying, I'm not, I'm not trying to eliminate a righteousness that I can't live up to because I can live up to that. But he's trying to say, I want you to understand what a Christian really is. Their righteousness is completely and totally in Jesus alone. He's saying, listen, this isn't about lowering the bar because it's too hard. It's about rightly defining the work of Christ. And I believe what he's saying is, it's about rightly defining the work of Christ in you so, so that you will passionately rejoice in the Lord for you. And so he defines that idea. He, he talks about exactly where the joy is found. Once he gets past saying, listen, those guys are asking you to do Jesus plus, don't listen to them. They're a threat to your joy. And I'm not saying it because it's hard for me. I've done it. I, I've lived up to it. I'm telling you this because your joy can never be in that. It has to be in the Lord. Because he says, but whatever I gained, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count that as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What is he saying? He starts this whole thing off and he says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. I want you to rejoice in the Lord. I don't want you to find your confidence in the flesh. I don't want you to find your, your, your righteousness in the things you've done. He said, because I've done all those things. And all of it is nothing compared to what? What, what does he say? It is nothing compared to the surpassing worth of just knowing Jesus. The, 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 I, all the things I've done is rubbish. So that just simply so that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. 
that I may know him. See, what he ultimately says here is he says, when I understand so deeply what Jesus Christ did for me, when I, when I set aside all of my things, all that I've done, all that I've accomplished, and realize it's nothing, all I want is Jesus. All I want is Him. I don't want the prestige of being the most righteous guy in the synagogue. I don't want the accolades of being the guy who is zealous in persecution. I don't want to be able to stand in the mirror and puff out my chest and say, what a great spiritual person I am. I want to acknowledge it's all in Jesus. You see, this passage expresses probably the most central truth that the church must get right. If we're going to get anything right. I would argue, if you don't get this right, get it deeply. You will struggle to find joy in the Lord. What we are seeing here is a discussion of the law and grace. Or as Martin Luther most often describes it, as the law and the gospel. See, the church seems to continually slide into the pattern of law over gospel. And we are continually having to be called back to this revelation. And that calling back becomes critical for our Christian joy. How important is this? How important is this doctrine? How important is this theology to our Christian life, to, to the joy that he's trying to get us to live in? Luther said, Virtually the whole of scriptures and the understanding of the whole of theology, the entire Christian life even, depends upon the true understanding of the law and the gospel. Or as one pastor said, every ounce of confusion regarding justification, sanctification, the human condition, God's grace, how God relates to us, the nature of the Christian life, and so on, is due to our failure to properly distinguish between the law and the gospel. And I would say, Paul is telling us, it's also paramount to understanding joy in Him. Paul starts with saying, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he expresses the theology, this, this doctrine. To get us to understand how to find joy in him. And that doctrine is this, there is no righteousness in the flesh. There is no hope in the flesh. There is no peace in the flesh. There's only righteousness in Jesus Christ. There's only righteousness in the Lord. Finding joy only in the Lord comes when you find your salvation only in the Lord. When you have the conviction that there is no salvation, no righteousness in what I have, what I do, what I accomplish, and you realize that that salvation, that righteousness, is found in Christ. What He did. What He accomplished. 
when that becomes your, 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 your rooted identity, when that becomes the, 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 the foundation of your, uh, of your spiritual identity, what rises in your spirit, what rises in your soul, what rises in your very being is a passion to be with Jesus. Because you realize he's everything. You realize nothing else matters but to be with my Jesus. Paul found no righteousness in keeping the law, no, no hope in his religious prestige, no life in his actions. But it all came from Jesus Christ. And because of that, what he wants more than anything else is to be in Jesus. I count everything as lost compared to knowing Christ. I consider everything that I had as trash in light of my gain in Christ, being found in Him. I have a righteousness, not of myself, but through His work. And so all I want to know is to know Him and to be in Him and to rejoice in Him. The heart of a joy found in Christ is the knowledge of His righteousness covering our brokenness. It causes us to, to have a passionate desire to be near Him. And in that, you'll find joy in Him. Not what we do, not what we have, not what we get. Our joy is in His presence in knowing Him. I feel like this truth has been echoing in my heart uh, since Tuesday night at, at my men's group. Men's group were studying the, the book of John. And we came to a story in, in John chapter 12 that honestly, as we were studying, it kind of caught me off guard. It's the story of Mary washing Jesus' feet with perfume and then wiping his feet dry with her own hair. It's an incredible challenge, I think, to our heart's love for him. As we read through it, you, if, you might, if, if you remember the story, she, she drops on her knees and she pours this expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus. She weeps, she wipes his, his feet and shows in that the unbelievable love she has for him. And as she's doing it, Judas looks down and says, that perfume is worth a lot of money. Do, do, you know how many, do you know how many poor people you could feed with that money? Why would you ever do something like that? As she was doing it, the room was full of these men who were close to Jesus, and they just kind of stood there, and they just kind of looked at her, and, they, they, and, and as Judas criticized her, nobody said anything. Jesus said, the poor will always be with you, but I won't. There's this incredible, incredible picture, this incredible image of Christ calling us to a love relationship with Him. 
Jesus wasn't saying not to give to the poor. In fact, it's fascinating because, because it mirrors a story that we've heard before about, about, about Mary. The story of Mary and Martha, right? When Jesus came and visited. And Martha was running around doing everything and trying to take care of this and trying to take care of that. But Mary came and sat right by Jesus and wanted to be with Jesus and be near Jesus. And they criticized her because she wasn't doing enough. See, we as Christians believe that our righteousness may be in the doing, that our righteousness may be giving in the poor. But what Jesus Christ is saying is none of that means anything if you don't get the first things right, and that's me. To love me, to know me, to be passionate about me, to be drawn to me, to be in my presence, rejoice in me, know in me. The challenge I have for you this morning out of this passage and what I think God has laid on my heart this week is, listen, if you're struggling in your joy, is it because your joy is not in Him? Is it because you haven't maintained a passion for Him? Paul's warning in this, in this passage is, listen, part of the problem is you've gotten your eyes off who He is. You've gotten your eyes off what He's done in you. Rejoice in Him because He is your righteousness. He is the one who died for your sins. He is the one who's given you hope. Rejoice in Him. I would say, I would say if, you're having, if you're struggling to find joy, it's because you're trying to find joy in something other than Jesus. And if you're struggling to find joy in something other than Jesus, it's because you've gotten your eyes off of what Jesus has done for you and who He is for you. He is your righteousness. He is your righteousness. He is your righteousness. The call of the believer is not to do more, not to pursue more, not to, not to accomplish more. The call of the believer is to sit at the feet of Jesus and find our joy. In him. We started this message. I said, I want this to be an opportunity for us to check our hearts. To examine our own hearts and say, Do I love him deeply? Is he my passion? Is he my joy? Is he my peace? Do I want to just be in his presence? I said this on Tuesday when I was at when we were talking to the men's group. feel as though my passion for Jesus doesn't cause me to be criticized on occasion for my zealotry. Maybe my passion for Jesus just isn't enough. Mary so loved Jesus that she couldn't help herself. A bunch of men stood around and criticized her. May I be criticized like her someday? Because my heart is so for Jesus that all I want to do is know him, to be near him, to love him. Would you take this time to examine your own heart? Would you take this time to Look into your own heart and ask yourself, do I love him more than everything else? 
Will I forsake all else just to know him and to be near him? To share in his sufferings that I may know him more deeply. Rejoice in the Lord.